And I would invite you this morning to turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. As we begin uh, the new year together, we're going to start uh, something I haven't done before, a lengthier topical series, kind of based around questions that are foundational to our life with God. And the first question we're going to ask is, what is the Bible? Uh, that question has all kinds of answers. Uh, outside of the church, the, the answers to that question would be things like, the Bible is a sort of just religious text, it's literature of some kind, um, in academic circles, it would be recognized as some kind of source of historical knowledge. Uh, maybe generally it would be recognized, at least parts of it, as a source of sound moral advice. But it wouldn't be called the Word of God. And it's that answer that separates the church's relationship with the Bible from the rest of the world's relationship with the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is God's direct speech. It's God talking to us, which means that for us Christians, the Bible is the primary way that God relates to us. It's how God begins a conversation with us, and it's how he responds to us as we respond to him in prayer and in lives of, of service. It's how God encourages us. It's how he rebukes us and strengthens us. It's how he shapes us into the image of Jesus. The Bible is the Word of God. Uh, now, from there, we could talk about all kinds of things, couldn't we? We could talk about uh, how we know that the Bible is the Word of God. We could talk about the way that God wrote the Bible. Uh, those are really good questions. Uh, if you have those questions, please get a hold of me this week. I'd love to have those conversations with you. Uh, but for this morning, I want to focus on what the Bible does. Specifically, I want to focus on the life that God's word gives to us. So I was reading 2 Timothy 3.16 this week, thinking that that was the passage that I was going to preach on today, uh, because originally I was going to talk about uh, how we know that the Bible is the word of God. But in reading the passage, I'd like to think that Jesus directed my attention down a different path. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, as many of you know, all scripture is breathed out by God, and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And what stood out to me for the first time is the depth of meaning in that phrase, breathed out by God. In the Bible, God's breath does what? It gives life, right? In Genesis 2, after God makes Adam out of the dust, he breathes into him, and Adam becomes a living being. And you can't help but notice in that context that the breath of God making Adam alive happens in the same context as the word of God making all things alive. God speaks and it comes to life. God breathes and it comes to life. Which means that the Bible is not only the word of God, it's also apparently in important ways the breath of God. And as Paul is thinking about the Bible and about its value and its use in the Christian life, and in Timothy's ministry as a pastor, and its importance in the church, he talks about the Bible as the way that God brings life. It's the breath of God. And that brought me then to Psalm 19, uh, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, because in Psalm 19, the psalmist talks about the Bible as a source of life. 
And he does so in a way that I think is very powerful and very helpful to us. So we're going to reflect on Psalm 19 this morning under these points. The first is the Bible restores life. The second is the Bible creates a way of life that's worth passing on. And then finally, the Bible can help us grow in holiness and in love. And I know some of you hear the word can, and you're like, I don't know, what do you mean can? It does. And I'm going to say, we'll get there. It's going to be okay. Trust me. Um, so those are our three points. So let's read Psalm 19 together, and then we'll, uh, we'll reflect on it this morning. So Psalm 19, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Let's hear God's word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, which is of more value than gold and sweeter to us than honey. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would make your word valuable to us in this way through the working of your spirit so that we might have minds to understand your word, ears to hear your word, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word be pleasing now in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we want to talk about this morning is that the Bible restores life. So in verse 7, the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Uh, a few years ago, I don't remember how long ago, it's because our kids were babies, and I don't remember anything other than things happened. And then they suddenly started to have a place in the calendar. But somewhere four, four years ago, I listened to these couple systematic theologians talking about the importance of the soul. And I know that this was important because I remember this even in the midst of like baby amnesia. Uh, one of them made this super interesting comment that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for soul is related to the word for life. And I thought, well, that's true because they're actually the same word. 
Nefesh means soul or life, depending on the context. And then he said, in the New Testament, the word for soul is related to a word that gets at what we would call today personality, sort of the thing that makes you you. We get the word psychology from this. And also the thing that allows you to have a relationship with God. Those, that word also attaches there as well. And then he made this comment that that shows us that the soul's importance is that it makes deep relational life with God possible. Uh, and since hearing that and studying more, I've come to believe that one helpful way to think about the soul in the Bible is to think about it as the thing that God gave us that allows us to relate to him as friends. And I think that can be a very helpful window in thinking about what the psalmist means when he says the law of the Lord, which here just means the Bible, revives the soul. The psalmist's point here is that God uses the Bible to renew and strengthen our relationship with him as friends or as his sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. Uh, but not only to renew and strengthen our relationship with God as friends, but also to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, because I think for us, surprisingly in the Bible, our soul's relationship with God, our life with God, our friendship with God, also involves other human souls. Uh, to go back to the creation story just one more time here, one of the things that we can see in Genesis 2 after God breathes life into Adam, and that word there is the same word for soul there, nefesh hayah, he becomes a living being, a living soul, a living creature. We hear the only not good in the whole creation story. God says it is not good for man to be alone. And then God makes Eve, which shows us that our relationship with God is most good, it's most blessed when it's lived in human community that is living in a blessed relationship with God as friends together. And then both of these elements are uh, what I think the psalmist has in mind when he says that the word of God revives the soul. The Bible is the thing that God uses to revive our relationship with him and with each other when it's been broken. How does the Bible do that? Well, it does it in two ways. Uh, the first way the psalmist actually doesn't talk about here, but I'm going to. Uh, so in the Bible, we hear how God restores our relationship with him and with one another. So one of the things the Bible tells us is how God actually makes us his friends and also how he then breaks down that dividing wall of hostility, of enmity between us to make us friends together along with him. The Bible tells us that God loved us so much that he came to endure the justice that our betrayal deserves so that through faith in Jesus we could be spared justice. Right? The Bible tells us that God forgives our sins, not because we deserve to have them forgiven, but because he loves us and he wants to restore this blessed relationship that he has with us at creation. And the Bible tells us that Jesus does this so that he can call us friends. Isn't that what he says to his disciples? I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And he does this so he can tell us that in his family, there aren't insiders and outsiders, they're simply saints. His people, who he has loved before the foundation of the world, 
and who he's made into an eternal community, which you could also think of as a forever family, right? The eternal family of God. And when we hear that and when we believe it, as it's offered to us in Jesus, our souls are revived, right? Our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus, it's healed, it's renewed, and it's strengthened. And that doesn't happen just the first time we hear it, but every time we hear it, I think, every week, when we hear about what God has done for us in Christ, our relationship with God uh, can get just a little more alive, right? A little more lively, a little more vibrant and robust. And it also works that way for our relationship to each other in Christ. When we hear that Jesus has made us one, or at least when I hear that Jesus has made us one, I think it helps us to live as one with each other. Like, that's right. We are family in Christ. We are God's eternal people. I need to act like it. I need to love the person next to me. It revives my relationship with the church. So the Bible is, uh, you see, one of the foundational ways that God actually gives us Jesus so that we can have a relationship with him that is alive, that is vibrant, and that then spills over in love to one another, which as a side note is why uh, God actually connects the Bible, what he calls the word of God, to Jesus and calls by calling Jesus the eternal word of God, right? The Bible is the way that God gives us the word of life in his breath of life, the Holy Spirit. But the Bible doesn't only tell us then what God has done to make us friends. It also teaches us how to live like God's friends. And in that way, it gives us what we need to actually live well with God. So it doesn't simply tell us what God has done in Christ. It equips us to respond well to what God tells us. And by the way, here we're entering our second point, which is that the Bible uh, creates a way of life worth passing on. And here we're going to focus on the second half of verse 7, kind of through verse 11. So before jumping into this point, let's all agree that in order to have a healthy relationship and in order to have a growing relationship, you need to know how to repent, right? You need to know how to say, what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. And you need to know how to put to put actions to that. You need to know how to forgive, right? You need to, to say, I forgive you. I want a restored relationship. I think none of that should surprise you. But I think we can also agree that you need to not be offending the other person all the time, right? A relationship that is full of constant offenses will never be healthy or grow in the way that it should grow. So kids, I'm going to tell you a story about my life that does not make me look so good, uh, but it's going to help you understand this point. When I was in sixth grade, I had a birthday party, and there was another kid who was new to my class who I wanted to be friends with, uh, but he wasn't popular with some of the other boys at the time. So here's what happened. I invited him to my birthday party, and he was excited, and our friendship got closer, but then some of the other boys found out and they told them they didn't want him at my birthday party. So I bowed to bad peer pressure and I uninvited him. Oh, don't worry, it gets better. Uh, now our friendship is broken because I've hurt him, right? 
but I still wanted to be his friend. And I, I felt bad that I hurt him. So I apologized and I re-invited him. So now he is willing to forgive. He's going to come, but our friendship, it does not go back to that same level of closeness that it had before I had invited him and then uninvited him and then re-invited him. Uh, there's a problem of trust there now that needs to be restored. But again, the other kids find out and I uninvite him again. So now we're not friends again. And then after living with a rightfully guilty conscience for a couple days and having a, a very hard conversation with my mother where uh, she, in a very godly, gentle way, was basically like, wow, that's terrible. You know the right thing to do. You should go do that now. Uh, I re-invited him again. And he comes. But it took us a long time, uh, about a year or so, to actually become the friends that we were, let alone what we would have been, if I hadn't have just constantly been sinning against him over and over again for the span of like two weeks. And by the way, now we're actually very good friends. Um, my point is in that story is in order to live, in order to have a life-giving relationship, you need repentance, you need forgiveness, but you also need to intentionally work at limiting your offenses against the people you're living with. Or to put it positively, you need to put effort into actually being loving and kind and just and good and merciful. You need to actually pursue holiness. That's what it means to live well with God and with each other. And that's why God says in the Bible that his commandments are life. Because they teach us how to be holy in our relationship with God and in our relationship with, with each other. It's why Jesus says that those who live with him need to learn how to love how he loves. Because it's in loving actions that relationships grow and get stronger and deeper. And it's why the psalmist says here that the Bible, right, the law of God, the word of God, the Bible gives us that kind of life. So he says in the second half of verse of seven and into verse eight, he says, I'm going to read it again. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So here we have a bunch of synonyms for God's word. It's called the Lord's testimony, his precepts, and his commandments. And I do think there are differences in shades of meaning between those words this morning. But for this morning, it's only important for us to know that all these words refer to the Bible. These are not things beside Scripture. These are Scripture. It is Scripture. More important, though, for us this morning is seeing what the Bible does in these verses. So we're told it makes the simple wise. It rejoices the heart and it enlightens the eyes. And here's what each of these means. So in the Bible, the simple are those who don't know how to live a good life with God or with others in God or in Christ. And we get this idea from the book of Proverbs where Jesus actually spends a lot of time defining this term fully. Uh, so in Proverbs, we see it the simple don't know how to be faithful to God 
and they don't know how to be faithful to others. And the reason why they don't know this is twofold. One reason is they haven't learned to see how their actions and words affect other people. In Proverbs, the simple are those who are blind to the fact that their broken promises, their ingratitude, their laziness, their selfishness, and other such things deeply harm their relationship with God and with those around them. So one more example from my life that demonstrates this. Um, when I was in college, I used to think that uh, I was a pretty friendly guy. I was easy to talk to, and, and I was, but not when I disagreed with you. Uh, and I learned this one day after having a disagreement with something, someone in the basement of my dorm. Uh, the person I disagreed with left, and then a friend who was also in the basement came up and sat down across from me, and he said, and he's now a pastor too, by the way, he said, Barker, do you know what your nickname is? And he said, the tank. Do you want to know why? Because you run over people. But I didn't know that. I remember being like deeply saddened by that. And what was revealed there was my simplicity. I did not see the way that I acted and spoke how it affected other people. I was simple. But there's another reason why people are simple and simple in Proverbs. Uh, the simple aren't only those like myself who are unaware of how they were affecting other people. There are also those who, uh, they can also be those who don't care because they haven't learned the value and the blessing of living in a holy relationship with God and with other people. And this is why Psalm 19 then echoes Proverbs so much when it says at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey, and even the drippings of a honeycomb. Why? Why does he say that? Well, because God's word restores our souls. It shows us the blessings of life with God and with each other and how wonderful it can be when we live like Jesus with God and with each other. It shows us why we should care, and it also reveals to us the ways that we damage that life when we're unaware of it. It makes wise the simple. And it rejoices the heart. Back to verse 8. Why does it rejoice the heart? Well, because the precepts of the Lord are right. Now, hereby right, don't think true and false. Think right as in going the right way. So the word used there is about travel, and it's a word that's used to describe all the different aspects of having a good journey. So it can be used to say that the way is level or straight. This is the right road, as in a, what we would call a good road. Or the way is beautiful. This is the right way to go. Look at the pretty trees and the mountains and everything. Or it's easy. It's level and, and straight. Um, now, I, you know, I want you to know right is the correct translation, but just make sure you think about going in the right direction, on the right kind of road, and the right destination. And that's why it brings joy. When you're doing what you need to do to love someone well, 
whether that's God or your neighbor, doesn't that bring joy to your heart? When you know that you did good and followed Jesus, when you can say, I was loyal to Jesus today. I helped my spouse today. Uh, I listened to my kids today with patience. I forgave my dad today from my heart. Gotta get everyone in there. I forgave my neighbor and I told them so. Or I recognized in the middle of a situation the Holy Spirit was putting a, a passage of Scripture in my mind that He wanted me to act on and I acted on it. I went in the right direction. I pursued holiness in my relationship with God and others. And now I have joy in my heart. The Bible tells us how to do that. It's why it brings joy. It tells us how to walk deeper in love with God and his people as we follow Jesus. It revives the soul and that life that it brings, brings joy by telling us how to walk with Jesus and in people in the, in the direction he's going and in the way that he walks. And then we're told that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening or giving light to the eyes. So we're nearing the end of our time together. Uh, I'm going to throw just a couple of things together so that we can get to our last point. Notice that at the beginning of Psalm 19, which I did not, forget was there. Uh, the psalmist started by thinking about the heavens, right? about the sky and the stars. And then he goes on, doesn't he, to think very specifically about the sun. And just quickly, the psalmist's point here is that the sun is essential to life and it's essential to sight and to living well in creation. The sun brings heat and with it warmth and light simultaneously. And in that sense, then, it's different from the moon and the stars that he celebrates in verses 1 and 2, which, which do allow us to see a little bit at night, especially if it's a full moon. But they, they don't bring the heat necessary for things to grow, and they don't give enough light for us to see things clearly and well and to act in the best way possible as we see in it the fullness of light. So the sun in Proverbs 19 has sort of this twofold function here. It's necessary to see, and it's necessary to live. And what the psalmist then does is take that wonderful picture and apply it to the Bible. And he says the Bible is like the sun. It brings life and it brings light simultaneously. And then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist then takes this idea and he asks God specifically to do both in his life with the Bible. So in verses 12 and 13, the psalmist prays, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins or intentional sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Um, now, I don't really like doing this, but in verse 12, the psalmist is not praying that God would declare him innocent of hidden faults. That is a possible translation of the word there, but it doesn't actually make any sense in the context where the psalmist is asking for help in changing his life. The best translation there is, free me from hidden faults. 
And here the psalmist takes the idea of the sun being God's gift of light and life, and he applies it to the Bible and to his recognition that he is simple and needs to be made wise. He needs to be able to see. So hidden faults are like me being the tank without knowing it. There are sins he doesn't know he's doing, but he needs to stop in order to live a full and blessed life with God and others. And so he needs the word to reveal the way he's acting poorly with other people. He needs it to enlighten the eyes. Free me from those things. Expose them to me so that I can repent and pursue change in Jesus' name. And then presumptuous sins are sins that the psalmist commits because he doesn't care. But the psalmist wants to care. I believe, help my unbelief. I don't care that I sin, but I do care that I sin. Lord, help me to care more. And so he prays that God would use the Bible because the Bible is the way that God can make him care by enlightening his eyes, not only so he can see his hidden faults, but also so that he can see how his intentional sins affect other people too, so that he can repent and learn how to live a good life with God and others, which Jesus holds out in Scripture. And then just really quickly before moving on to our last point, the reward that he talks about in verse 11. That reward is this. It's passing on this blessed life with God to the generations who come after us. So when we hear uh, or think of rewards, because we are Western Americans, we think super individually, individualistically. What am I going to get? How big's my crown? Do I get, you know, quality diamonds? What's in it for me? Uh, now, there are individual rewards for thinking, for living with Jesus. But in the Old Testament, when God thinks about rewards, and in the New Testament too, and when he thinks about the blessing that he, the, the, the blessing of rewards that God most commonly thinks about is how the gifts he gives to us can be extended to others through time to the coming generations. And if you want to see that clearly, look at the Abrahamic covenant where the promise is for Abraham and for his children and their children to the coming generations. What God gives to Abraham is meant to be given through time to those who come after. And here in Psalm 19, where the context, uh, where the point of the context is about living well with God and with God's people, when it's a context about reviving the blessing of relationship that God established in creation with himself and with others. I hope you can see that this idea that God's reward here of, of giving his blessings to us and then extending that to our kids and grandkids and those who come after us, that is clearly in view. That's the reward. Passing on a good family life in Jesus to those who come after us. In other words, the more that we learn to live like Jesus, the more we pray that we can pass on that way of life to our community and those who come after us. Okay, final point. I'm going to make it short. The Bible can help us grow in holiness and in love. So I'm using the word can very much on purpose. The Bible can help us grow in holiness and love. And I could have used the, the word can in the other points as well. The Bible can revive our life. The Bible can give us 
a life worth passing on. And uh, here's why that word can is important. It's because the Bible doesn't do these things automatically. You don't read the Bible and automatically get holier to everyone who knows me's deep sadness, right? You don't read the Bible and automatically get closer to Jesus. These things only happen if you are open to receiving the word. In terms of a conversation, it only happens when you listen to the person who's talking to you. And then if you prayerfully decide to act on what you've been told. So like we pointed out, in verses 12 and 13, the psalmist takes his reflection on what God's word does and the life it brings and the light it brings, and he prays to God, do it to me. Shine the light of your word in my life. Let me see how I need to change. Let me see where I need to repent. Let me see it. And don't simply let me see it, then let me act on it. Let me live out of the light and life that your word offers me and gives to me. Just like the world lives out of the light and life that you give it from the sun. That's verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The meditation of the heart means how you plan to act, how you plan to live, what you intend to do. And what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, help me to speak and to plan my life in a way that lines up with the joyful life in Christ that your word holds out to me and that you say you have given to me as a gift. In other words, to quote the book of James, Lord, help me to be a doer of the word. That's what that verse means. That's what verse 14 means. Help me to be a doer of the word because your word revives the soul. It refreshes my love for you and for those around me. It reveals my failures it opens me up to the possibility to repent of them. It teaches me how to live out of the blessings of Christ's grace. And it brings joy to my heart as I learn to live in the way that pleases you. And that's why I use the word can. This is what can happen if we are willing, by God's grace, to open up our lives to God's word in a responsive way that desires and indeed does act upon what we hear. And my hope is here at Grace this year that that will be our new, or maybe better in light of New Year's, our renewed goal, right? To listen to God's word and to respond to it so that we and all who come to be with us can experience the blessings of life with God and so we can pass that life on to the coming generations. Let's make that our goal. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, please help us to be receptive and open to it. Give us ears to hear. Uh, use it to show us um, our open sins and our hidden sins. And through it, uh, teach us how to repent and follow Jesus with our whole hearts. 
Please use it as you promised to do to revive our souls and to give us a blessed life of joy with you and with each other through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.